0: You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee Podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. Thanks for gathering with your church family this morning. If you're a guest, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. It's a great time to be a guest here. because We're going to start today going through every book of the Bible for the next year, like a big picture overview sermon of every book. Book, all 66 books of the Bible. Uh, and it's important for us to know that there's a lot of different ways to, to preach the Bible. And this is a different kind of approach for us. But we think it's really important because it allows all people who will be here who will be listening. I want to encourage you if you miss Sundays because you're out of town or whatever it might be, stay caught up to listen to the podcast. There's an opportunity for us to really see how all the all the Bible fits together, how it tells us God's story, how as a result of that it tells us our story. Uh, so I'm excited to jump in and to be in the scriptures. And with all the things that are going on, we should always be in the Bible, uh, but with all the things that on in our culture, in our, in our lives right now, what, a, what an important time to say, okay, what is God's story? How has God dealt with humans throughout history? How does God make himself known? What does God think about these things? So we're going to be going through the books, the whole the book of the Bible, and I'm really excited about that. If you started a Bible reading plan uh, with the new year, don't be discouraged if you've already fallen behind. Uh, that's, just, that's just easy to do. Jump right back in or start over. Uh, the, the exact days and the and perfect attendance, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you being in the scriptures. So you can get a reading guide out at our Connect desk. It's also online. Get back in if you've fallen behind. Be reading your Bible. Commit to it uh, in this new year. So here is what we first need to know, and that's that the story of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where we'll be today, it begins with nothing, and then out of nothing, we get something. Starts with nothing, and then from nothing, we get something. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I believe with all my heart that God actually created the world that he spoke it into existence by his mighty power and his mighty hand. Exactly how all that happened, I'm not exactly sure. The Bible was not written, the book of Genesis, to answer all of our scientific questions. The Bible was written to let us know who God is, that God is our creator, and that God is the one working throughout the history that he controls, that he has created. Uh, So the first rule of theology, if we understand the book of Genesis and the whole Bible in general, uh, the first thing you need to know is that there is a God, and the second rule is that you're not him. Like that's the big idea, that's the deep thought from the book of Genesis to understand theology is that there is a God, in the beginning God, not in the beginning us, in the beginning God was self-existent and we are not that God. See Genesis tells the story of a God who creates everything out of nothing in order to bless his people and glorify himself. That's the book of Genesis is going to launch into the rest of the scriptures. It's also important to know who it was written to. It was written to a pilgrim people, the Exodus people, who had escaped from Egypt by God's divine hand and saving power and rescuing power under the leadership of Moses. This is to let them know God's story and to let them know that God is with them, how God has already acted in the past and how he will act for them in the future. Many scholars believe that in Exodus 33, where you see Moses enter the tent of of meeting, when he had a meeting with God, people think that it was at that time, and I subscribe to this belief, that God actually gave him the book of Genesis, that God told the story to Moses uh, by his divine hand uh, to allow him to then tell that story to the people of God who were in Exodus and who were in exile. So after we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, here's what happens as Genesis gets cranking. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. We see the dominion of humanity, the dominion of man, that we are greater than the animals, that we are not one with nature, we're not on the same playing field as animals and nature, that we are to rule over it, that we are God's prize crown jewel of his creation, only humans are told they're made in the image of God. That can be said about nothing else in his creation. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. How significant is that to know that every single human being was made in the image of God? Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday where we recognize that churches all across America together, that all people are made in the, in the image of God, that all life is precious. From conception all the way to the tomb, that every single life Matters to God because we are all made in the image of God. As we've observed Martin Luther King this weekend, we're reminded of what happens when people greatly, 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 understatement, forget that. That all people are made in the image of God. People see themselves as superior to anyone else. What it looks like when sin drives our lives. When we forget exactly it is that God has created us all in his likeness and in his image. We're told that God created man in his own image, he created him the image of God, he created them male and female. Very specific, out of the gate in Genesis 1, God shows us his design for humanity, that in God's creative power, in his sovereignty, he made a man and he made a woman, he made them for each other. We're told that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth, subdue it. This is going to be their responsibility to now populate the planet. And as a man and a woman together, and not to be TMI here, but God had a design. Anatomically, that works, a man and a woman together. The woman would be able to conceive a child, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. So God made a man and a woman to be together, to enjoy each other in relationship, also to fulfill and populate the earth and rule over the whole earth together in terms of the nature that God had given them. Then we're told in chapter 2, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And don't think a garden like a garden in your backyard where you go to get your kale for your salad. Not that. Think of more an entire area, a whole large place in the east, and he placed the man he had formed. So a place for his people to live and to dwell and to enjoy him. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food. God provided their needs for them including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some specific trees that are included here in this story. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work and watch over it. So we see work actually taking place before any sin ever entered the world. The work was good and that God gave it to us. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. How amazing is that? This freedom to enjoy God and enjoy his creation. He said, but there's, there's one thing. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat it, you will certainly die. Why would you die? Because you disobeyed your creator. You went against what God had said. But you were free to eat from, I want you to enjoy me. I want you to enjoy what I've made. I want you to enjoy the world that I've given you to rule over. I want you to to enjoy fellowship in this wonderful paradise of a garden of Eden. I want it to be for you. But there's one thing I am telling you not to do. Do not eat from that particular tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, the garden presents the model of God and for people living in perfect relationship and peace it was as close to like magical as we possibly can think and people think of where's a place that's magical like you think of disney and disney you know is pretty magical my wife actually cries when we first walk down main street when we enter to the place and talks about how magical it is but disney world is like the landfill compared to the garden of eden and what god had made for his people to live in harmony and enjoy him in relationship there's notice nothing's mentioned there's no sickness There's no abuse. There's no racism. There's no divorce. There's no abortion. There's no adultery. There's no lying. There's no death. Only one thing could bring about death, and that was eating from that certain tree. And something happens that destroys this peace and destroys this amazing relationship, and it's called the fall the fall of mankind. Chapter three, now the serpent, who is Satan, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Like, are we sure God said that? But let's think about it for a minute. Did, did God really say that? How interesting that the first great temptation was questioning the word of God, twisting God's words to allow you to do what you want to do rather than what God has for you to do. I regularly say this here, if you're new here, you'll hear me say almost all the time like a broken record, there's true great lies that we believe. And the first lie is there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And the second line, or second lie I should say, is I have to go around God for all the things I'm looking for in life, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, identity rather than actually to God himself to be those things for me. I preached in Montgomery, Alabama last night, and uh, one of our former City Church U students uh, is, uh, is there at that church, and I talked about the lies. I t- always talk about those two lies. I think it's foundational for understanding our story. And she came up to me afterward and she says, you talked about the two lies. I was like, wow, I heard that every single Sunday my entire four years of college. I was like, good, you were listening, great. It's important. Guess where that comes from? Here. This is the first time somebody believed those two lies. But it all goes back to, did God really actually say that? And that applies today just as much. Did God really say that he just made a man and a woman? Did he really say that? Did God really say that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him? Did he really say that? Did he really say in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins? Did he really actually say that? How often today we want to question the words of God when they've been given to us by his grace and his sovereignty and in his perfection. So the woman said to the serpent, well, I'm going to answer your question. We may eat the the fruit from the trees in the garden. Look at all God has given us. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, that particular tree you're talking about, God said... What a contrast. Did God really say, yes, he said, you must not eat it or touch it, or there's, con- there's consequences. The wages of sin the Bible tells us is death. You will die. And here he goes, no, you will not cer- certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil you know one of the many things, probably one of the primary things that distinguishes Christians from Mormons, this is not me being judgmental or throwing any bombs or anything like that, just telling you what somebody believes. One of the things that distinguishes us from Mormons is that one of the foundational truths of Mormonism is that if you're a good enough Mormon, just to use regular talk, basically a good enough Mormon and fulfill your duties, you get to actually become a god yourself and then populate your own planet. And here we are back to the Garden of Eden, and what is the serpent telling them? You can be like God. You can be a type of God yourself. So what happened? She went from, yeah, God told us we can't can't eat from that. You asked if, if God really said that. I'm telling you he did, to all of a sudden her going, ooh. There sounds like there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. I'm looking for something like that. Wow, that, to be a, like God? I'm going to go around God. Even though he did say that, I'm going to say, uh, okay, I'm going to let it go through one ear out the other or be stubborn or just kind of pretend I didn't hear that. I'm going to go around you for what I'm looking for in my life because that sounds incredible. So the woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And she didn't need any of those things. because so she had it all right in front of her in the Garden of Eden in her life with God. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. What a wuss. And he ate it. Don't marry a guy like that. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. The result of that was, for the first time ever, they were aware of shame. They were aware of vulnerability. They were aware of life not in relationship with God. So what do they do? God and his grace, they were able to sew fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, kind of a temporary removal of the shame and guilt they were feeling. And don't worry, the story gets even worse. We see in verse 22, the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. Death has now entered, innocence gone. And with that fall comes every single broken thing you see in our world today. So Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden. He's banished from God to work the ground from which he was taken, from ruling over it to now being subject being a subject to it. He drove the man out. Like God's not a fairy godmother in the sky. Because of sin, he's driven the man out. He didn't say, oh, it's okay, oh, it's fine. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This great reality of what sin has done, of what disobedience to a holy God has done and the consequences. In Romans five twelve, we see this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, the consequence of sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So we inherit this, what's called original sin as a doctrine, and at the same time, we prove we're sinners, and that's true of us by going and sinning ourselves as we're judged by the sins we commit in the body. Something amazing was happening already in the form of really God's intentional act of grace and also in the promise before this banishment from the garden. See, first, God provides a covering for them in the fig leaves. God had every right to, to, kill, to destroy them at that moment, to end humanity, to wipe them off from the face of the earth, but instead, God provides a way for them, because God has mercy and compassion for his people. But that can't happen by God saying, oh, it's no big deal, because the wages of sin is death, so he sets up for them the opportunity to atone for their sins through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. However, there's a promise that takes place. In verse 15, before the banishment from the garden, he says, I will put, this is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. In all of, there's like a Mount Rushmore most important verses in the Bible. This is on it. I will put hostility between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent here. And between your offspring and her Offspring. The offspring of a woman is the child that the, women, the woman will give birth to. He will strike your head, as in, He is going to crush all that you have done. All that you have undone here in this garden, He's going to crush you for it. But it's going to be costly. He's going to be wounded, this offspring. He will strike His heel. And if a serpent strikes somebody's heel, what's going to happen? It's going to bleed. There's going to be a wound. See, the gospel here is already in motion. The God has already initiated a plan to save His people. Like we already see His patience that He didn't end humanity right then and there when He would have had every right to do so as God. One poet, Campbell Bordel, wrote this about the promise in Genesis three: he "Wrote He's coming, the seed to crush the serpent's head." the one who returns life to the dead, a hope that's colored in crimson red. So in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, this is centuries later, where it says to us that, behold, a, a child is to be born. A child is given to us. That's not some new theological concept or innovation. It is a story and the promise moving forward that has been since Genesis chapter 3. So out of the gate in Genesis, we see three primary things. One is the characterization of God and the story of his dealings with his people. Out of the gate, we see that. The sinfulness of the human race, we see. And then the story of the unfolding plan of God to redeem a people for himself, despite human waywardness. I got those three points from the Gospel Coalition's journal on the book of Genesis. The story of the unfolding plan of God to redeem a people And that there gives us the rest of our Bible. It's been said you can break the Bible down into two parts. Genesis 1 and 2, innocence, right relationship, Garden of Eden, and then Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible. So then God begins to continue to deal with the human race in general as the human race grows and is populated. There's great sin. The effects of the fall are massive. There's wickedness, rebellion against God, and we see the story of Noah. The story of Noah is not a children's story about animals getting on the ark. It's a story of God's wrath and judgment and justice towards sin, where his holiness is displayed. But we also in that story see God's mercy. Because in chapter eight, verse one, and we're told that God remembered Noah. He remembered this one who was a man of faith, who was also from the seed, as we'll see in a moment, of the woman in that lineage. And he remembered Noah. And by remembering Noah, he also remembered his promise in Genesis chapter 3. So while a wooden ark delivered Noah from an actual physical death, we look forward to the New Testament story, a wooden cross would now deliver us one day from spiritual death. So he continues to deal with humanity as a whole in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We see the Tower of Babel where people are trying to make a great name for themselves through the building of a tower, and God destroys it and destroys their work by confusing their languages, showing again that he truly is the God of all people, that he reigns over everything, even humans' greatest efforts to make a name for themselves. So after dealing with humanity as a whole with the flood, humanity with the whole through the Tower of Babel, now he's getting ready to lock in on one man. One man, one family, and the descendants that would come after. So God has already displayed his character through all of creation, through his judgment, through his wrath against sin, and now he's going to show his character and show his might and his love and redemption and mercy through the elect people that now he has called out from the world. And it begins with a man named Abram, who later have his name become Abraham. And the line of Abraham would go through his descendants through Isaac and Jacob, and on and on and on. It would be received, this promise, only by faith. So Abraham is introduced to us as not a very impressive figure. He's a member of a pagan family living in Ur of the Chaldeans. It is sovereign grace and sovereign grace alone that elected and chose Abraham to be the one by which the seed would come through, by which the promise would be fulfilled. In chapter 12, we see one of the most significant characters in all the Bible be revealed to us. And the Lord said to Abram, this is that significant character, go from your land. Abram's just chilling and doing his thing. He tells him, hey, all of a sudden God speaks to you. Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. As in, you're going to move. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham's sitting there going, what in the world are you talking about? All the people on earth are going to be blessed through me? A nation's going to form from me? The Lord said to Abraham, verse 14 of chapter 13, Look, in the place where you are, look north and south, east and east and west, and I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you will see. God makes a land promise to him; it's a spiritual promise, and He's going to make him a great nation. We'll see that in a minute. There's also a land promise. God will have a place for His people to dwell, for God will have His earthly dwelling as well. He says, "I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth." So if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring would be counted. Who can count the dust of the earth? That's how great, that's how numerous your offspring are going to be. So get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So what does Abram do? He received that promise by faith. in verse eight, See in verse 18, so he moved his tent. He did what God told him. He responded to live near the Oaks of Memory at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord It led him to worship. God made what's called the Abrahamic Covenant with Abraham, that he would bless him, give him land, and make him a great nation. But Abraham, having questions like any of us would have in chapter 15, says, Lord God, what can you give me? He says, I'm childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. how, How does this work? Now the word of the Lord came to him This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. On this clear night, look up there and see all the stars in the galaxy. If you're able to count them, and good luck with that. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. We're told that Abram believed the Lord and accredited him as righteousness. He was righteous by faith. So on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, I give you this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river to Genesis, he says in verse 18, all the way to the Euphrates River. So the promises for offsprings and generations and the remedy for God to fix what was broken was that a child would be born. And then he promises to Abraham to look into the stars, to go check out the galaxy, try to count them. And could it be that at that time, Abraham looked up and envisioned the actual bright and morning star, our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the entire book of Genesis anticipates that through a future descendant of Eve, the evil one will be defeated and God's blessing will come to the nations of the earth, the descendants of Abraham. And what is that blessing? It is the Redeemer, the Rescuer, our Lord Jesus Christ. This promise takes us from Adam to Abraham through many others to David and then to Jesus Christ born in the city of David in Bethlehem. So those parts of the Bible that seem really wordy and are genealogies and his names you can't pronounce and over and over again, they all serve a purpose to show us that God had worked out and was working out his redemptive plan throughout history through the descendants of one man and his family. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Said Abraham know everything? No, but he knew something. He knew there was something to this promise. It was greater. He rejoiced to see the day when it would ultimately be fulfilled even though he had his questions. He would go on to show his faith when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. It made probably no sense to him at the time, but God told him to do so. He was going to trust the goodness of God. He went to sacrifice Isaac. God stopped him provided the substitute of a ram in his place. A foreshadow of a great substitution that was to come. And the Lamb of God who took on the sins of the world would stand in our place and take on our death instead of us. We see Sodom and Gomorrah, a city full of filth and immorality, rebellion against God. And Abraham says, if there's any righteous person in the city, will you spare it? God's like, sure. There's a righteous person. That's God's way of saying good luck with that. If there's one righteous person, I'll spare. And then we see the Bible tell us there's no one who's righteous. No, not one. We depend on a different righteousness that's outside of ourselves that only can come from the one who has never sinned. We see God's sovereign hand electing. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. He chose Jacob instead of Esau. Jacob, Isaac's son, would be a namesake, have his, he'd be the namesake for the people of Israel and have his name changed to reflect the promise to all people who would then forever be known as Israel. We get to Joseph, who was sold into Potiphar's house by his own brothers, sold into a form of slavery, eventually led to his imprisonment for something he didn't do, a false accusation. God, in his grace, would allow Joseph to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, where now Joseph would find favor with the royalty, with the given authority that would allow him to be positioned to rescue his own people and provide food for them during a great famine, and set them up to be in Egypt where they would be okay in terms of their food and what they needed. See, all these are perfect details in God's plan to save his people through a lineage, through descendants that will lead us all the way to Christ. We can say that Genesis is the story, the theme of it is creation, sin, and recreation. That God is recreating what was eventually supposed to be from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, working on behalf of his glory and his people. From Noah, we see that family line move to Abraham. We're told all the descendants of the earth that he will be blessed by him. God establishes a covenant of circumcision with Abraham. And that royal descendant trace would keep going all the way to Christ. See, the entire book anticipates that through the future descendant of Eve, that the evil one will actually be defeated. And God's blessings will come to all the nations on earth. And here is Jesus before he leaves to ascend to heaven in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In the book of Acts, we then see the scene where he descends. What does he tell his disciples? To go to every nation and make the good news known. Because the great blessing God has for the nations is the name of Jesus Christ and his work and his power. The divinely promised offspring takes us again from Adam all the way to Jesus Christ. So God's creation plan was to make the earth his dwelling place. And in line with this, human beings are instructed to fill the whole earth, exercise dominion over all their creatures as God's regents. This garden city would point us again to another one to come. See, the garden presents the model for God and people living in a perfect relationship. That's what it does for us. And we won't see that perfect relationship again that's flawless without any brokenness until we get to another garden. In the book of Revelation, this is John writing in the book of Revelation, which Lord willing, will be at in the end of November of this year. Then he showed me the river of the water of a life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life. Where were we first introduced to that? In the Garden of Eden. It was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, which represents the 12 tribes of Israel who come from the descendants of Adam and Noah and Abraham and on and on, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for for, for healing the nations. In the same way the product from one tree broke humanity, now this tree heals humanity. And there will no longer be any curse. It won't exist anymore. The effects of sin will be no more. The brokenness we live in will be no more. The throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him as the world was first created to be. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. and That will be their ultimate identity forever and ever. They'll, they're marked by the name of the Lord. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. These people were first supposed to be God's vice regents. You know, ruling over with God over the earth he had given them, it was broken and now one day it will return to that. God's always had a plan. One thing you can learn from Genesis is it's not cliche to say that God has a plan. The book of Genesis proves to us that God has always had a plan for his people. And the great news for us is we've already seen most of that plan fulfilled. These people here, these people who've gone before us, they were anticipating. Remember Jesus said, Abraham, look forward to my day. We don't have to look forward to that day because it's already come for us. We already celebrate Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. And Easter is the ultimate reversal of the curse where he rose from the grave, conquering that last foe, which is death. But we anticipate now the day that is to come, where he will return, victorious over death once and for all, and make a new garden for us to live in for all eternity. But to get there, there had to be a plan. And we see the end of Genesis, the significance of Joseph, after he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he, much time had gone by, and he had gained great prominence in Egypt. Joseph said to them, talking to his brothers, don't be afraid, they came to find him or excuse me, they came to Egypt to find food and met and saw Joseph then. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned, because he has a plan, it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. But not just the physical survival of those people who were gonna be under famine. But now in Egypt they could have food, but the spiritual survival of the promise that he had made to Abraham's descendants, Joseph and his family being those. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children, your, your offspring. He comforted them, spoke kindly to them. Joseph showing forgiveness to people that did not deserve it. People call him a christ like figure, kind of a foreshadow, some, like a type of Christ. So what happened? Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He must have been on Tom Brady's diet, I assume. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation, generations, descendants. The sons of Manasseh's sons, Meshur, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. That's okay. Because one, it's not going to be forever. There's a place called eternity. But also the promise lives on. God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land, the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you're to carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. The people of God were now positioned in Egypt to go forward with the rest of the story rather than dying and starving in famine in another land. So what does all this mean for us? Well, sometimes the great application of Scripture is for us to be reminded of God's faithfulness, reminded of God's sovereign grace, of his power, So we read in Romans 8, 31, that if God's for us, who can be against us? That's talking about our salvation, but it dates all the way back to here. If God has a plan to bring his people back to himself and restore what was once lost, to bring us back to that sense of innocence one day, you know what that tells us? It doesn't matter who's against us, because God is the one who is sovereign. Here's Joseph thrown into slavery by his own brothers. And that was going to be the very one God uses to carry out his promise, but even deliver his own brothers. God's for his church, he's for his people. We're the bride of Christ. He's actively working throughout history to redeem a people to himself. And they can be traced back through descendants from the very beginning. In other words, Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the final offspring being born in that promise, the ultimate one that all of it was pointing to, that God has made his promise, he's kept it, and that now here is the one who would come to liberate his people once and for all. And the new covenant will be made to be one that was written on our hearts. We're made new and God redeems us and cleanses us and makes us new creations and ultimately redeems what was lost a people to himself. So who are those stars in the sky that he talked about? Who's the dust of the ground? that You can't even count who it is. Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. That's the number of your descendants. Guess who they are? Anyone in this room who proclaims the name of Jesus. That's the promise. Isn't that incredible? When he was talking to Abraham a gajillion million years ago, it wasn't that long, but that, that long ago, you were already in mind. When Genesis chapter 3 and that promise took place, you were already in mind. God was going to come and win a people to themselves. There's no way we could get back to innocence on our own. We're banned. But that garden that was guarded by the angels now is wide opened in the book of Revelation for all who will call on the name of Christ. And that's some really good news. I love Genesis. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the story, how ultimately it tells us about you and who you are, about what we've done to break your law and to disobey you and to rebel against you and worship other things rather than you. But how you are a God who is holy, but yes, you are God at the same time who is merciful and loving. And we're thankful that while the wages of sin is death, that Jesus, our substitute, that he stood in our place and the gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we start to go through the scriptures, Lord help me as I try to learn my rhythm in doing this and the best way to go about it and allow us all to receive and to hear and to love the Bible and the story more which will hopefully lead us to love you more and then love others and be a part of your mission. On the Sanctity of Life Sunday where we ask that we'll be a people who return that lead the way and believe that all people are made in the image of God. That we believe that to defend life in the womb. As we remember Martin Luther King this weekend, we remember that in terms of the great needs of racial justice that still must happen in our nation. That will all be driven by the fact that we believe we are created by you, that we are your people. We're citizens of another world. We're the people of the promise that you have made. So we thank you for your redemption. We worship you because of it we know that Jesus, who died for our sins, the promised offspring, is alive and reigning right now and will come again. In the meantime, use us for your glory. Use us by your grace. Use us for your name. And it's in that great name we pray. Amen.